This morning's teaching is called Love and Conviction, the Way of Jesus. You can turn to our text, John 4. Uh, The whole preaching text is in your bulletin, and you can also turn there in your Bibles. Caleb Kaltenbach grew up in the LGBT community. When he was uh, two years old, his parents split up. They divorced, and uh, his mother came out as a lesbian and um, entered into a monogamous uh, union with another woman. Uh, his father entered into a series of non-monogamous relationships um, and would later come out as a gay man. Uh, Caleb remembers marching in the Kansas City parade uh, with his mother and her partner, and uh, he was elementary age child and he recounts that for the most part that the parade was really happy. It was joyful and festive, and there were people cheering and smiling and celebrating. And then towards the end of the parade, there was an angry mob waiting for them, spoiling the festive mood with mean-spirited signs, hateful obscenities, and meanwhile squirting Caleb and his family with water bottles that had been filled with water and urine. And Caleb, bewildered, looked up at his mother and said, Mom, why are they acting like this? And, and he never forgot her reply. He said, Caleb, those are the Christians, and they hate us. Uh, and he was confused. Why would anyone hate our family? Why would anyone reject us with all that venom? Now, thankfully, this was not the last group of Christians that Caleb encountered growing up. In high school, some of his friends invited him along to a Bible study, and he, he joined the Bible study with the express purpose of um, uh, debunking the idea that the Bible sexual ethic um, was uh, in conflict with his parents and their sexuality. As he spent time in this loving group of Christians, he actually met Jesus Christ, and he found that Jesus Christ was incredibly loving and gracious and had power to forgive his sin. He studied the Bible, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and became convinced of the truth of the gospel, and eventually he was baptized. When he came home to tell uh, his mother, and then later his father, about his baptism, they felt betrayed, and he felt torn. Eventually, they, they asked him to leave the house, even though he was 16 years old, and so he found places to stay. And, but, you know, um, Caleb stayed in conversation with both uh, his parents, both his mother and her partner as well as his father, and, and talking with them about like, what he believed and where they were at, and, um, and he really loved them. He really stayed connected to them. On the other hand, he felt the tension because in his own study of the Bible, he had become convinced of the Bible's teaching that sexual intimacy was reserved for a man and a woman in a marriage covenant. And so, man, how did he hold these things together? He had this conviction, and he had his love. Um, he saw along the way, a lot of people falling off on either end. He saw Christians sacrificing love for the sake of conviction. They would um, implicitly reject people from the LGBT community and others who didn't follow the Bible's sexual ethic. Most of them weren't like the parade protesters. Most of them weren't necessarily outwardly hateful. They were just passive. They would just passively like withdraw from hospitality and hugs and honest conversations with others who didn't share the Bible's sexual ethic. So they sacrificed love for the sake of conviction. He also saw Christians sacrificing conviction for the sake of love. 
Um, he noticed that Christians would sort of disregard or modify the Bible's teaching about sexuality, and they did it for the sake of meaningful relationships that they had with people who didn't hold to the Bible's teaching. And yet, Caleb, as he followed Jesus, couldn't escape this call to embrace both and to actually see love and conviction as mutually strengthening, not mutually exclusive. Um, it was more difficult for him. He had to bear a cross. Um, it, it made his life messier and uh, his relationships messier. Yet he found that if he were willing to bear that cross of holding love and conviction together, the Holy Spirit could work miracles. There were people that could hear the gospel who otherwise would never. Um, people in his life could experience Jesus's love um, like he did at that Bible study. The more that Caleb learned to embody both love and conviction, the more he became a spiritual father, um, even to his own parents. In fact, when Caleb became an adult, there was a door opened up with his parents that he and his parents both were totally surprised by. More on that later. How about for us? How are we doing in holding love and conviction together? You know, many of our friends and neighbors in Chicago do not hold the biblical sexual ethic. Um, and they might hail from the gay, lesbian, or transgender community. They might be happily partnered in a loving, monogamous, same-gender union or marriage. Um, they might be in a polyamorous relationship and part of the polyamorous community in Chicago with a romantic and sexual bond with three or more individuals. Um, they might just simply live outside the Bible's sexual ethic um, and be sexually active outside the covenant of marriage. You know, some of the kindest, most trustworthy and virtuous people in our lives fit this category. They don't follow the Bible's teaching about sex, but you know what? They're wonderful human beings. We, we're grateful to have them in our life. We don't hate them. We love them, in fact. Um, many of them do consider the Christian sexual ethic to be immoral and to be hateful. Um, and as a result, they may hold in suspicion anyone who subscribes to it, which would make conversations hard with them. And I felt this too. Um, you know what? In the face of that, we can become honestly passive in our love. We may kind of shrink back from people uh, who don't share our convictions about sexuality and will pass up opportunities for hugs and hospitality and honest conversations. Um, on the other hand, we can become lax in our convictions. We may toss out, ignore, or back away from the Bible's sexual ethic and just kind of throw it under the bus for the sake of relationships. We might adjust our views to match the lifestyles of the people that we're in meaningful relationship with and do everything possible to avoid the labels of transphobic and homophobic. Now, the way of Jesus, here's the way of Jesus, it's to hold love and conviction together so that they become mutually reinforcing. It might seem impossible to us, and the spirit of fear would have us abandon one or the other. Yet the spirit of Jesus would have us hold them together for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of Christ, to show with our lives that far from being separate, they're meant to be interconnected and inseparable. True love always leads us into conviction. True conviction always calls us to love. Um, now, holding love and conviction together is essential to following Jesus and to becoming what we've been talking about this fall, becoming a spiritual mother, becoming a spiritual father. Um, as we do, as we hold them together, guess what? Our lives, like Caleb's life, will get messier and, and we'll have more awkward conversations um, but we'll also see more miracles, I believe, and we'll bring honor to the Father by how we love people and remain faithful to his word. 
Before I go any further, I want to address some people listening here this morning. Maybe you're here from the LGBT community or from the polyamorous community in Chicago. Maybe you're here and you're just not convinced that the Bible teaches that sex is only between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage. Maybe you just, this is just for you. It's a matter of good disagreement among well-meaning Christians. Or maybe you're here and you know what? You're just really upset right now. You don't like how this sermon is going at all and you're really ready to tune out or walk out. So if that's you, please hear me. You've honored us with your presence. We respect you. We love you. And here's my ask. Would you be willing to listen in on a conversation between Jesus Christ and a woman who didn't share his views? Listen, okay, Jesus is amazing. And he, he had a spirituality that attracted people who didn't share his views, who were, who were very different from him culturally and spiritually. And then he loved them enough to engage them in conversation and a lot of times that, those conversations became electric and in many cases changed people's lives forever. And this conversation is very much like that. I love the story so much because we see Jesus showing genuine love towards a woman who lives a different sexual ethic, holds a different theology, and comes from a totally different culture than his own. So if you're willing, uh, please don't peace out. Let's just watch the conversation unfold together. The first 15 verses of our text really showcase the love of Jesus, just his incredible love, overcoming barriers that no one else had figured out how to get through. If you turn to John 4, verse 1, again, bulletins or Bibles, um, or the microchips in your brain, um, turn to John 4, verse 1. We'll look at the first five verses there. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed for Gal Galilee. And, as he, uh, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. So this story comes along the way of Jesus's ministry. And the first few verses of our ch uh, chapter show the progress here. Jesus has been ministering in the southern part, so he's been ministering in Judea, and then, um, but for reasons um, that we could explore in another sermon, he decides, I need to go back to Galilee, actually, so I need to head north. Now, most Jews, observant Jews, who are in Judea, who needed to get north, would sidestep Samaria. They would take the long way around. They would follow um, a, a route that led them uh, east, and then they would go north, then they'd go west, totally getting around Samaria. Here's what Jesus did. He overcame race and culture by taking a uh, northern route right through enemy territory of Samaria. Uh, why was Samaria so uh, despised? Why did people ignore and sidestep Samaria? Well, several generations before Jesus, um, the land was filled with Jews who were not captured. They were part of the northern kingdom, and they weren't captured and sent away into exile. And what they did is they hung around and they intermarried with foreigners who brought foreign practices, foreign ideas, um, foreign culture. And then what they did is they married them, they had children with them, and they mixed 
the first five books of the Old Testament, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, with uh, pagan religious texts and pagan religious ideas. And it just sort of mixed. And that mixture to an observant Jew who really paid the cost of going into exile um, was, was disgusting. It was like that mix is a disgusting mix. That means unfaithfulness. That means impurity. And I don't know if you've ever been flipping your channels. Through, I don't know if anyone flips channels anymore. <laughs> but if you've ever come across like a televangelist who's mixing Bible and prayer with hucksterism uh, and, uh, and selling religious goods and services for desperate people watching late at night, and you're like, man, that's disgusting. They're totally misusing the Bible. They're totally misusing prayer. They're having prophecies and stuff like that, but this is like disgusting. And it's like, okay, so theologically educated Jews from the South did not like the Samaritans, what they were doing to the sacred books of Moses up north. And so they were disgusting, and they stayed away from them. They thought that they were other and icky, but you know what? Jesus doesn't think about people that way. He doesn't look at what people are doing or what people believe and be like, you know what, you're totally, okay, I don't like you, I don't want you, I have no interest in you, there's just no bridge. You know, Jesus is always looking to build bridges with people who seem like they're the last people you'd ever see worshiping God. And so he went to Samaria and he overcame those gaps. Um, verse six, Jesus's, uh, sorry, Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. So Jesus is thirsty, okay? He's tired. It's in the middle of the day. It says it was about the sixth hour. That means 12 o'clock noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um, now, think about this. Think about how Jesus' love overcame divisions, not only of culture and race, but also of gender. In Jesus' day, it was scandalous for a man to address and talk with a woman in public, even up between a man and his wife, and even to this day, in many parts of the Middle East, it is a scandalous, uh, sort of reprehensible thing for a man and a woman to talk in public. And so in our culture, it might be like this. I was having dinner um, with my wife at a nice restaurant one time here in Chicago, and we're having a private conversation about a very personal matter at our table. And during that conversation, a woman who was sitting at the table next to us interjected in on her opinions about what we were talking about. <laughs> and as you can imagine, I was a little upset. Like, hey, this is our little restaurant cone of silence. And even if you can hear, you need to pretend like you didn't hear anything. <laughs> kind of ruin the mood for us. You just don't do that in American culture. You don't just sit down at people sitting outside and be like, oh, hey, can I join you? It's invasive. It's inappropriate. Um, so Jesus is going to break that cultural rule out of love. And he's going to talk with a woman. Not only is she a woman, she's an outcast woman. Why does John include the 12 o'clock detail? It was the sixth hour. Well, um, because that's when no one was going to get water. Um, so the well, it's like a Starbucks of their day. It's the town center. People are going, um, except it's a Starbucks without air conditioning in the Middle East. 
And so you go in the morning or you go in the evening and you go in groups to talk and connect. Why is this woman going alone in the heat of the day? Because she's an outcast. And Jesus is going to ignore that. Uh, he's going to break rules around religion and culture and race and gender because of his love. And he's going to honor this woman that everyone else has cast aside. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus knows this woman's thirsty and he's gonna draw a parallel between her physical need and her spiritual need. Living water in the physical world is, is water that's moving. It's living, it's moving, it's bubbling, it's delicious, it's fresh, it can renew you from the inside out, you can drink it, you can bathe in it. It's not like that stale, brackish water that tastes gross and make you, makes you sick. Living water from Jesus, spiritually, is the Holy Spirit. It's the fresh, renewing, bubbling life of God that can totally forgive your sin, fill you with a new power, and change you from the inside out. Jesus wants this woman to have the living water of the Spirit. But, but she's still, you know, it's an awkward conversation, and she's still fixated a little bit on the physical water. Verse 11, she says, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. So where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know, so she's skeptical, and there's a mixture here, I think, of like, the woman's physical need and, and getting her head around what Jesus is offering spiritually and, and wanting that as well. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, Jesus is, again, he's tapping into her spiritual condition and her spiritual longing. She's expressing a desire to take hold of what he's offering, even though she doesn't fully get or understand the implications of it. So she, she wants more, she's leaning in. And this is the moment that Jesus comes to with so many people where if they're going to enter into the kingdom of God, he's got to put his finger on an issue. He's a master at doing this. He knows what the issue is. You know, with the rich young ruler, it was his money. Okay, that was the issue. With uh, Zacchaeus, it was his injustice. With, with Peter, it was his betrayal. And with the Samaritan woman, it was her sexuality. And here's where we move from the, the, the love of Jesus, which is bridging gaps to the conviction of Jesus, which is willing, which is willing to, to own and communicate the truths of who God is, that he believes deep down in his soul, even if it makes the conversation kind of hard. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, 
don't miss what Jesus is doing here. He is able to honor the woman, saying, hey, what you said is true, while also calling out something that she's been hiding. You've got five husbands. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Why couldn't he have simply said, hey, follow me, receive the Holy Spirit, enter the kingdom of God, that's your living water. What's the issue? Well, the issue is this. Jesus held and lived a conviction about human sexuality that he passed on to his disciples and anyone who wanted to follow him. Um, In Matthew 19, don't turn there, but I'll tell you about it. In Matthew 19, some of the cultural elites of Jesus' day were bringing up hot-button issues of sexuality, gender, and marriage and trying to corner Jesus with those questions, trying to get him to say something that would alienate people. And um, here's what Jesus had to say in response to them. He said, have you not read, meaning haven't you been reading your Bibles, have you not read that, that he... God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is saying, hey, look, have you not been reading Genesis 1 and 2? God created humanity from the beginning with two genders to represent his image, male and female, but those genders needed to be brought together. Therefore, marriage was created to bring them together in an interlocking, life-bearing, permanent union. And that's where sex is to happen. When the religious and cultural elites pressed him further, they kept pressing in, he clarified further and said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus is affirming to them that a marriage between a a man and a woman was the only acceptable expression of human sexuality. And anything outside of it just falls outside of God's created design. Jesus knew that the woman's soul and sexuality were intertwined and inseparable. And so he gives her a gentle and strong call to repentance in her sexual practice. Um, He doesn't shame her. He just gives her a pathway to get right with God. In fact, this pointed moment, this awkward part of the conversation where Jesus kind of names the elephant in the room is the turning point for this woman's eternal future. It's like Jesus put the stick of dynamite right where there was a blockage spiritually for her. He lit the dynamite by saying, go call your husband. And what happened was that became the channel through which she experienced the first taste of the grace of God. As you can recall later, she goes to her village and she says, I think I've met the Messiah. He just told me everything I ever did. It was actually front and center to her testimony. Um, So uh, even though Jesus' convictions are difficult to hear, the woman, to her credit, stays in the conversation. She doesn't peace out. She stays in the conversation, and she does end up changing the subject with a theological question. Verse 19, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, meaning uh, a mountain in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, you know what? Maybe the woman's deflecting because she doesn't want to talk about sex anymore. Um, I think that the woman's actually bringing legitimate spiritual questions that she has because she wants to know. Um, You know, if any of you have gone through the course Alpha, it's an introduction to Christianity for people who 
who don't believe or who don't know what they believe about Jesus. On the first night, after dinner, everyone gets to answer this question. If, what's the question for God that you have? If you could ask God just one question, what would that be? And I think if this Samaritan woman was sitting at Alpha and asked that question, she would, she would say, I have a legitimate question about where we're supposed to seek God, which mountain? Um, in Deuteronomy 12.5, which this woman holds as scripture, God commands, but you shall seek the place of the Lord your God, um, that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And so I think this woman is asking, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to, I mean, there's a mountain here in Samaria where God met Abraham and where God, really, where God gave the Ten Commandments, where, where God met Moses. I mean, this is a really special mountain. Jacob was here and everything else. But you say it's in Jerusalem. Based on scripture, I don't even agree. I don't, I don't read First and Second Samuel. I don't read First and Second Kings. I don't think David was the king of Israel. I don't think Herod's temples has any legitimacy. I think, the, I think the mountain's right here. Where should we go, Jesus? In his answer to the woman's theological question, he will stand on the authority of scripture, including the parts that she did not accept as valid. Um, so Jesus is going to refer to the prophets and the Jewish scriptures, the historical writings, which pointed to a future when the temple would be replaced. And instead of finding God on the holy mountain, you would find God in the holy Messiah. Jesus, standing on the authority of the law and the prophets, is going to change her where question to a who question. Verse 21, here's his answer. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Okay, so don't forget, Jesus is loving, respectful, and building a bridge to this woman, but he's also willing to say, your theology is wrong. And he is willing to stand on scriptures that she does not subscribe to. He's not being a jerk, nor is he accommodating his convictions to fit the culture. Jesus is secure enough, Jesus is differentiated enough to start this cross-cultural conversation without shape-shifting in the process. That's when you know you have a strong, emotionally healthy person. They can start a cross-cultural conversation and build a bridge, but in the process, they're not shape-shifting their convictions to match the person to avoid uh, blowback. He loves this woman enough to pass along his convictions to her. So why would he do that? I mean, why not just let sleeping dogs lie? Why risk a conversation with her where there could be hurt feelings and disagreement? You know what? Jesus, he loves this woman too much to withhold the truth from her. He loves her too much to withhold the truth from her. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, Jesus says, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, what's Jesus saying? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is like, look, a time is coming and it's already been inaugurated when true worshipers of God will no longer be defined by race, religious customs, uh, certain temple location, gender, 
history, sexuality, or any other way that we form a sense of self. True worshipers of God will be defined by these two realities, spirit and truth. Spirit refers to God's power. It's that living water that fills you up, that uh, fills you with life, that forgives your sins. It's the resurrection power that filled Jesus's body and raised him to life. God's spirit is always alive and bringing life out of death. Uh, And God's truth is his revelation as he discloses it in the scriptures of here's who I am and here's who you are. Stand in this, that spirit and truth go together, that they're a seamless whole, that they mutually reinforce one another. Jesus was a man of both spirit and truth, okay? He submitted himself, think of that, both to the Holy Spirit and to the scriptures. When the Holy Spirit said, it's time to go into the desert for 40 days where you are not going to eat, where the only food you will eat is the Father's love, he said yes, and he went to the desert. When he came back and the Holy Spirit said, now I want you to go to the margins of society and be with the poor and the sick and the lame, he said yes to that too. And when the scriptures spoke of the suffering servant and spoke of him going to the cross, when he understood that from the scriptures, this is what it means to obey what the scriptures are saying about me, he went to the cross to fulfill what it said about him. And Luke 24, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Like, and again, haven't you been reading your Bibles, disciples? They they didn't believe that he would rise. So he's like, haven't you been reading your Bible? This was supposed to happen. I must do this. Believing and standing on the scriptures cost Jesus everything. Cost him not just his reputation, but also his life. The woman said to him, verse 25, "Um, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now don't miss what Jesus is doing as he closes this conversation. He's turning a marginalized woman with a checkered past into one of the first Christian evangelists. Here's what one author noted about this exchange. She says this, in a time when women were not educated or considered unable uh, to understand spiritual things, this conversation with Jesus would have been life transforming. Other men only saw her sexual potential, but Jesus saw her spiritual potential and he trusted her with big things. This woman was the very first person that Jesus clearly told that he was the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? And then she becomes the, like, Billy Graham of her village. Verse 28, um, so the, wo- uh, the woman left her water jar. She just, like, drops her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, and again, people she's been hiding from, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, it's like an awkward cross-cultural conversation um, broke open a spiritual dam for this whole region. And people start flooding Jesus with their questions. You could look, for, look further down at verse 39 of John 4. Look at, you'll have to flip your page there. 
Um, think of what's happening here. Um, around this woman, many Samaritans, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. There's a, a whole like spiritual retreat happening here. Jesus is leading with a bunch of Samaritan spiritual seekers that have got legitimate questions about what it means to be right with God. How I would love to be a fly on the wall and see all of the healing and all of the questions answered and all of the joy and rejoicing. Verse 41, many more believed because of the word. And then the woman becomes, she's not only not on the margins anymore, she becomes the person who like listens to their testimonies. Verse 42 They say to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. You know, she starts out the story and she's marginalized and alone. And you know what? By the end of the story, we might even say that she's become a spiritual mother because like people are coming to her with testimonies of like how, like how they met Jesus and, and what they have to say about him. Now, if the savior of the world is capable of that level of life change, what else might he be capable of in our day? Uh, What other awkward, life-changing conversations might he call us to join as well? And how might we prepare so that love and conviction can be mutually reinforcing? You know, some of us, I think we do need to broaden our love. So here's a question for you. Who are the people in your life that Jesus loves and is seeking but that that you might be avoiding out of fear? Who are the people that Jesus loves that you might be avoiding? We've got an opportunity to open our lives, open our homes, open our church for people who are not like us, who don't believe like us, who don't live like us, and to love them and embrace them. So who in your life can you extend yourself like Jesus did? And along the way, you might pick up a copy of Glenn Stanton's book, Loving My LGBT Neighbor. Great book, answering a lot of practical questions for how do you navigate some of these awkward conversations. Now, some of us need to deepen our convictions. Here's a question, another question for you. What are the scriptures that Jesus took seriously that you might be tempted to avoid or modify? And if you want to deepen your convictions, I I encourage you to read the same scriptures that Jesus read. Read Genesis 1 and 2. Read his words in Matthew 19 in community with other Christians. You might pick up Preston Sprinkle's book, People to be Loved, as a guide as you study the scriptures. And along the way, we've just got to ask Jesus, Jesus, fill us with wisdom. Fill us with love. Fill us with conviction. And help us bring love and conviction together in a creative way for our day, for the Samaritan woman's in our life. Jesus is so good, he's so creative that I believe he will help us navigate and we will see miracles in our day. You remember Caleb Kaltenbach, who grew up in the LGBT community? You know what, against all odds, not only to become a Christian, he became a pastor, I kid you not. And um, family wasn't happy about it, but he, felt called, and he followed through on his call. Um, At one point, he was pastoring a church in Dallas, and both uh, his parents ended up moving to Dallas uh, near his church. Both his mom uh, moved as well as his dad moved, and guess who showed up to welcome them to Dallas? 
to help them unload their moving truck, to help them furnish their apartment, to help the, like, like show hospitality and love, invite them to church, everything. It was Caleb's church that showed up with love. And, um, and I have to say, after like a few years after that, you know, God began to move in this time with his family, both his mom and his dad. And over time, both of them confessed Christ as Lord, began following Jesus. It doesn't mean that the awkwardness end. It doesn't mean that the pain ended. But there was a miracle that took place. And there's still a relationship. If you want to read the rest of the story in depth, I recommend Caleb's book, Messy Grace. Messy Grace is a good one. Emmanuel Anglican, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so proud of you because I, I see you becoming spiritual mothers and fathers. I see you wanting to love. I see you wanting to honor God and your convictions. I see you wanting to bring these things together. May we now look to Jesus so that he can fill us with love, conviction, so that he can fill us with his grace and truth so that we can be faithful in our day to the call he's given us, so that we can become the spiritual mothers and fathers that he's called us to be, and so that we can offer the living water of eternal life to the people in our life who are thirsty. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.